You're listening to TIP. Hey, so how's everyone doing out there? I am super pumped about today's episode because our guest, Luke Roman, really gave us a fantastic interview. Uh, when Stig and I were done recording this show, we both looked at each other and we're like, uh, wow, that guy is really smart. And I think you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about here in just a couple minutes. Uh, during our discussion, we talked to Luke about the current situation with the U.S. dollar and why it might be in a long-term downtrend uh, that had just started this past summer. Additionally, Luke provides substantial thoughts on China, its role in the global economy. He talks about gold, crypto, the U.S. equity market, and much, much more. So without further delay, we bring you Luke Groman from the macro-thematic research firm Forest for the Trees. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. So uh, welcome to the show. Uh, We have a guest here, Luke Groman, as you guys heard in the introduction. Luke, we are pumped to have you on the show um, I can't wait to start diving into some of these questions and hearing your thoughts. So welcome to the Investors Podcast. Thank you guys very much for having me on. I'm excited to uh, have a chance to be on the show. Yeah, we're pumped to have you. Okay, so Stig, you got the first question. Fire away. So Luke, the first question is something I'm really excited to hear your opinion about because intense efforts have been made by the Chinese to create oil and gold contracts denominated in the Chinese currency, Yuan. Um I know you have a very interesting thesis of how the Chinese can print one for oil as a as a means to remove themselves from the dollar banking system. Could you could you elaborate on your thesis? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to do so. Uh, you know, I, what I think they have been uh, what the goal is here is ultimately uh, the way we've looked at gold and what China has done with gold has been a means to an end, if you will. In other words, we don't think what they're doing with gold is about gold. We think it's about oil. And specifically, what we think they're doing is attempting to, as you said, um, uh, gain the ability to print yuan for oil. Uh, and in so doing, uh, they would become really only the second nation in the world able to do that. And and what we think the goal is here uh, is that if, if you're China, um, uh, you can l- look and see in the past, um, being on the dollar-denominated system or the d- dollar-centric currency system, uh, leaves you with a big vulnerability, a vulnerability you've, uh, that you've seen firsthand with Southeast Asia crisis uh, in the late 90s. Uh, you saw it in South America in the early 2000s. You saw it in South America in the 1980s. Uh, you saw it with the Soviet Union. And that is that um, historically, Uh, If you're an emerging market, the way this game sort of goes for you is that you borrow in dollars and then um, uh, the dollar strengthens or the U.S. begins raising rates, dollar strengthens, you begin to get upside down in terms of the currency mismatch. Um, You can, as an emerging market in a dollar centric system, you really only have one lever to fight that, and that is your FX reserve pile, uh, which is... Um, you know, so you would you would uh, you know as the dollar strengthens, uh, you have to burn down your FX reserve pile to defend or support your currency, and then uh, at some critical tipping point, uh, you don't have enough FX reserves, and you're forced to significantly devalue your currency. You have a financial crisis, um, and you know at that point we sort of wash, rinse, repeat, and do the whole thing over again. And so 
Well, we think what China's really been trying to do is trying to do, and appears to our eyes, uh, is very, very far along the way and successfully so doing, is all of th that emerging market FX reserve calculus, right? And there's a number of different China and Yuan bears out there uh, talking about this. What this is really based on is um, IMF uh, uh, reserve adequacy math. In other words, you know, the IMF has a formula that says if you are uh, an emerging market, then you need to have FX reserves equal to, you know, a certain percent of your import bill, you know, et cetera, you know, your capital needs. And and that's what sort of every everybody that's really been bearish on the yuan or a lot of people have really been bearish on the yuan is focused on this reserve adequacy number. And what China is doing is, is sort of changing the game a bit, which is to say, uh, if China can print yuan for, we think, starting with oil, but ultimately, um, you know, if you look at their import bill, it is heavily driven by uh, commodities. Uh, then all of a sudden, um, you have a second lever to manage your import bill with. And that's where I think the oil and gold contract come in. In other words, um, if, if you're China, um, the worst case scenario for you is you're importing oil and commodities only in dollars and you're importing more oil because you're growing and the oil price is rising. And so uh, you're going to start moving towards a current account deficit. And if you go into a current account deficit as China with your banking system, et cetera, your debt position the way it is, um, that's going to be a problem. You're going to have to burn down FX reserves. Eventually, you'll have a, a currency crisis. You'll have to devalue the yuan, and you'll set yourself back decades in terms of the development of the country over the last couple of years. What the yuan, oil, and gold contracts, China's sort of you know, circumventing that whole process by going direct to the key oil exporters and saying, we'll pay in yuan. We've effectively reopened a Bretton Woods gold window in yuan at a floating gold price at Shanghai at the SGEI, Shanghai Gold International Board, starting in 3Q14. Uh, they then linked that to Hong Kong in 3Q15. They then opened another yuan gold contract in Dubai in early 17. Um, and so now China is, has a, a second lever. Rather than just burning down FX reserves as a means of defending their currency, uh, if they were to move towards or actually get into a current account deficit position, now they can go to their exporters willing to sell uh, oil and other commodities in yuan and, and adjust the gold oil ratio um, at which they are doing business. And in so doing, manage their oil and other commodity import bill which, given that the import bill is such a big part of um, uh, you know imports for them, uh, uh, allows them to then manage their current account in a way that they have control over their current account, and not it's not pure, purely based on what the dollar is doing. So, uh, Luke, so I read somewhere uh, I can't remember which book this was in of Ben Graham's, but um, I read somewhere that Ben Graham suggested that the best way to peg a currency is to do a commodity uh, like index, like peg it to oil, peg it to all these different commodities, not just gold like we had done in the past. Um, I'm curious, is that kind of what you think you're seeing uh, China do at this point? I know that you're, you're really suggesting that it's mostly in gold and oil at this point, but do you see that maybe their end state is something that would be, are, are they eventually going to move towards a peg or do they like still having the ability to just print like crazy or like where do you see this going i guess i think most central bankers centrally planned economies etc are going to be very reticent to peg anything peg their currency uh let me rephrase uh peg their currency to anything whether that be gold whether that be a commodity basket etc what i do think china is trying to do 
um, is um, effectively um, peg or, or manage the ratio of gold to oil. And when you say when I when you hear gold, it can be you know gold in SDRs, it can be SDRs, but it's it's if you look at what happened, you know, prior to 1971. Uh, you had a system where we were at a fixed price gold standard for much of the prior 200 to 300 years. Uh, you know, it went away during wars, et cetera. Uh, Post-1971, you had a system where uh, the U.S. closed the gold window uh, and we effectively backed the dollar uh, with oil. And the deal was, you know, if you look at the data itself, it was never explicitly said this way. Uh, but the U.S. made, you know, the U.S. kept the dollar as good as gold for oil. In other words, if you look at um, how many barrels of oil um, a, a treasury bond bought, it was pretty consistently between, 15, I want to say off the top of my head, 15 or 20 to 30 barrels of oil uh, per treasury bond for almost 30 years. Hmm. Um, and, and so to directly answer your question, what I think is happening is, is, Again, Chinese China is looking to increase their own domestic flexibility economically, uh, which a peg of the yuan to a currency basket would reduce that flexibility. So, having uh, setting up a, a system, a parallel system at the time being with key creditors like Russia, like Saudi, uh, other OPEC nations, where there is a gold oil ratio where they manage the ratio of those two that can adjust over time. But my guess is you'll see that ratio. That that'll be the ratio they manage to, and that would effectively, you know, if you reset up a system where gold is made much bigger relative to oil, or SDR is made much bigger relative to oil, uh, and uh, you you fix a lot of the imbalances in the system, and you create a system uh, that allows you to maintain your flexibility as China um, while also uh, circumventing the dollar system. But look, you would need uh, major oil countries to to be able to secure that physical supply of all that oil. So, I mean, what do you think the outlook for that would be um, in the future? What do you mean in terms of um, storing the physical oil supply? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, before like Chinese can go in and and make these contract with uh, with uh, with these countries. Uh, and and denominate in their own currency, basically move some of the oil supplies away from the uh, oil based uh, dollar standard. Um, you would they would you would need support, I guess, from the Middle East and and from other oil providers. So, um, what what do you think the outlook is there? Uh, typically or historically, the U.S. have been extremely dominant in that region. Yeah, you know, I got you. Yeah, that, and that's that's a great point. And I think. Um, what you would really need to get this system kickstarted is less full support from the Middle East and more full support from uh, one big critical oil supplier. And as such, I think that's where Russia comes in. Obviously, they're non-OPEC, but our case has been, and if you look at the, the, the evidence, there's a lot to support this, is that once China was able to get Russia into the fold and then Iran into the fold and then Venezuela into the fold, you had a quorum of oil, major oil suppliers willing to do this. And once they began to be willing to do this, then all of a sudden that starts to put a lot of pressure on any oil exporter 
that doesn't want to do it. And so what you start to see is a market share move, right? So as you look at 2016, 2017, China is the world's biggest oil import market now. And China's and Asia broadly, you know, the head of OPEC, I think last year uh, said that, you know, over the next 25 years, the only market that is going to grow for oil demand is Asia. And China, of course, features largely within that. So China's using that dominant position uh, to, to move market share. And so Saudi, either two or three years ago, was China's number one position. They fell to number two to Russia. For a period of time last year, they fell to number three behind Russia and Angola, which is incredible when you think about, you know, sort of mighty Saudi falling to number three in the most important oil import market in the world to Angola. And the question is, why is that happening? And well, in 2015, Angola made the yuan their second reserve currency after the dollar. Uh, and so there's a lot to suggest they were selling oil and yuan. And so to me, China has been patient to gain the clout, to make themselves a big physical market player, went to Russia. Russia was more than happy to do it. And so now China's moving the market share to those willing to price in yuan. And that in turn is, uh, you know, we've been hearing for a while. I was in London um, six months ago, was hearing from people in a position to know that the discussion was happening. Saudi Saudi's probably going to have to be forced to go along with yuan. They have to keep their biggest customer happy. Uh, and so I, I think China and Russia have the ability to do what they're doing, but it's ultimately China and Russia driving this process. You know, I think anybody who's here in this argument can say, yeah, I can see that trend playing out. But then the question really becomes, what's the speed at which that trend's going to play out? So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, is this something that takes five years to really kind of reach maturity where you really start seeing a rival rivalry with the U.S. dollar? Or is this something that's a 20-year kind of thing? I'm, I'm curious to hear the timeline. There's a couple ways to look at it. The first is just strictly on the market share side. If you look at, okay, what percent of world oil flows could China quickly denominate in yuan? And I think consensus in, in the West in particular is, you know, you're going to get three rogue states, you know, quote unquote rogue states, Iran, Russia, Iran, Venezuela to do it, and nobody else. The reality is not as clear to me. Uh, and the reason I say that uh, is, is if you look at the way we've looked at it is, the world's top 15 oil net exporters. In other words, those nations, you know, you take their production, you, you subtract their usage domestically, and what you have left is their net export uh, number, you know, what they can supply to world markets. And if you look at that number, China has, over the last five to six years, signed either outright yuan oil pricing deals, yuan swap deals, significant lending deals whereby in a lot of cases the, uh, the 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 loans are repaid in actual physical oil or infrastructure big major infrastructure deals where China is either partnering with them in refineries or other domestic infrastructure of these countries at any rate these deals that China has signed with oil net exporters are with oil exporters responsible for 96% of global oil net exports which means you know in theory the 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 highway's already there, right? The fiber's already laid. The question is, when's the fiber going to get lit, so to speak? And and so, you know, given that consensus is that you're only going to have three rogue states pricing oil and yuan, I would take the over on that, um, given China's market clout. The other way to look at it, aside of, of sort of the physical oil market dynamics we just discussed, is is sort of the reverberating impacts on the United States and the United States fiscal side, which is to say. Part of the reason everybody's had to stockpile uh, dollars for as long as they had, you know, it started off as you had to have dollars to have oil. And 
that was the petrodollar deal. So that led to growth in in dollar you know, heavily dollar denominated FX reserves. That's what the deal started as, and it sort of has developed over. You know, you started you started off needing dollars because you, you if you needed oil, and then it sort of developed into a network effect of you know you needed dollars because you needed dollars, and and everybody had dollars. Uh, but again, that then once this system starts happening, if you're China, you know China announced in late 2013 the PBOC said it's no longer in our interest to stockpile FX reserves, and China hasn't on net added a treasury bond. You know there've been some movements up and down in six or seven years, and so when I say when to, there's this second angle of what it means for U.S. deficits, what China's doing, the flip side of the coin of what China's doing for the U.S., it means. Over time, the U.S. government gets permanently and structurally defunded at sort of a slow but steady pace as the world just needs less treasury bonds. And the problem is, is that everyone doesn't have to show up and sell their treasuries. They just have to stop buying treasuries with the U.S. fiscal situation doing what it's doing. And it begins to put pressure on the U.S. fiscal side. And the reality is we're seeing that pressure. We saw that pressure beginning in 3Q14. Uh, when global FX reserves stopped rising and fell for the first time in 70 years, LIBOR just happened to bottom that same quarter. LIBOR has been rising ever since. And now you're seeing LIBOR, it's screaming higher like a scalded cat, which tells you there are two reads, right? One, there, there's obviously a dollar shortage offshore. The question is, you know, everyone keeps saying, well, that's because there's all this supply of treasury bonds and it's soaking up the dollars. Exactly. <laughs> that's because the U.S. has a funding problem or a fiscal problem um, that we ultimately think the Fed's going to have to fund. So that's where I think you get into this two-pronged answer of, okay, there's the physical dynamics that we discussed first, but then there's also this network effect or, or sort of slow working balance of payments machinery that is squeezing the U.S. as U.S. funding needs are rising meaningfully higher uh, given the twin deficit picture in the United States. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? 
Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. You know, it's interesting that you bring up this network effect when you're talking about currency. And I I don't think there's any way we can answer this, but I wonder if it's a winner-take-all kind of scenario that would continue to play out as long as we have a global economy. So like if the yuan continues to build steam... Is that something that's going to completely materialize into like this full-blown network effect where the dollar would diminish? Um, and I, we're obviously talking over a long extended period of time, but um, I don't know, Can could those ca- currencies coexist together at a 50-50 split as far as like the demand or does the fiscal situation in the United States make the network effect of the yuan just continue to explode? I, what, what do you think through that? I do think they can, and I do think they will coexist regionally. I think the way this movie ends is you end up with regional reserves, uh, where the dollar is the reserve in sort of the, you know, North America, South America. The euro is the reserve in, you know, your, you know, Western Eurasia, if you will, and then the yuan is the reserve in Eastern Eurasia, um, and and you know, of course, overlapping around the fringes, each of those currencies uh, each. In terms of um, this network effect, ultimately, once you begin pricing oil commodities, et cetera, in multiple currencies, um, you know, you begin driving a multipolar, multi-currency world, which is something everybody's talking about. And, you know, it's not just me. It's the World Bank. It's the IMF. It's Russia. It's China. Everybody's talking about this. Um but if, if you're going through this multipolar or multi-currency world, what starts to happen is that you start moving back towards a currency system that trades off of balance of payments fundamentals. Um, you know, if you look back for thousands of years, the way currency markets traded, you know, the fund in terms of fundamentals was really twofold. It was based on your 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 trade position, and it was based on how big your reserve pile was. And it's interesting, Chairman Zhao, the PBOC said exactly this in Shanghai in early 2016. And that was the way the world worked for millennia, up until 1971, in which case the currency, the best currency had the lowest pile of reserves and the worst trade balance. And so if we're moving back towards this multi-currency system, you have to start looking at the currencies, you know, basically evaluating their fundamentals based less on this dollar-centric system and more based on a, the traditional balance of payments, FX reserve pile system. Under that system, as we move towards that system, you should see the currency start to move in a manner consistent with that. And if you look at the big five, if I have to rank them, 
you know, yuan's number one, euro's right up there, number two, running neck and neck. Then you've got the yen. Then you've got the pound, and and then you've got bringing up the rear by a you know way way back is the dollar. And that's not to say you know the dollar is bad per se. It's simply a function of the you know a hangover from the way the old system worked. We had to run those deficits to supply the currency for everybody else. And so, in terms of how do I think it will play out? I think ultimately, as we move towards a multipolar system, the dollar has to weaken dramatically. You know, and so to answer your question of will the you know will the yuan take over the world or will the euro take over the world as this network effect? My answer is no, because it has a sell as we move towards this balance of payments uh, centric system, the dollar is going to have to weaken tremendously. But as it does, we're, we compete really, really well when our currency is rel- fairly valued relative to others. And the American shale is a very good example of that. You take the dollar to seventy, you take the dollar to sixty five or sixty on the Dixie. Uh, index, we're going to be competing really, really well. And so uh, to me, it's less a winner take all and more having this multipolar currency system drive more appropriate relative currency valuations based on the fundamentals of trade and the fundamentals of FX reserve positions. And, uh, you know, it'll, you'll get to that sort of regional reserve uh, system, in my opinion. So are we there with the dollar? Like we've seen the dollar devalue in the last, uh, when did it really start to devalue? Probably six months ago, really start to take off. And we're seeing this trend and it's looking like there's a lot of momentum getting behind this. Is this just an interim kind of thing? Or do you think that this is the the start of something much bigger? I, I think it's the start of something bigger. I mean, and it's not to say we couldn't get a sort of near term uh, counter move. In fact, I think some of the Fed's increased hawkishness of late has been more about supporting the dollar and and supporting the long end of the treasury curve than it is about the need to become more hawkish. But ultimately, um, you know, as long as as China and Russia and OPEC, as long as it's sort of this big trend of uh, multi-currency settlement of of oil and and commodities more broadly, trade more broadly keeps happening, it's going to keep forcing the world towards this, this multipolar system. Um, and, and as it does that, um, boy, the dollar is still not trading in the right zip code yet. It's got to go way lower in order to kind of get that system to balance. And, you know, the governor on that ultimately, in my opinion, will be, you know, the, the U.S. deficits. If we just keep doing what, what if this multipolar system just keeps developing, it means people just have they don't have to sell treasuries. They just don't have to buy them or they don't have to buy as much as we're generating. And compounding math will do what compounding math is going to do, and, and, and the dollar will weaken from there. Especially if our debt keeps going up and we just have to keep issuing more and more, right? It only compounds the issue. That's exactly right. And when you look at you know the demographics and, and some of the structural deficits, we're getting to a very dangerous place. I mean, you look at what the United States spends its money on, and it's, you know, boy, 90% of what we spend our, our tax receipts. If you look at tax receipts... 90% of tax receipts are spent on uh, entitlements, defense, and interest expense, and um, politically impossible to cut any of those. So when a person would compare the U.S. to Japan and say, well, why isn't it happening over there? Would your response be because of the FX reserves, or what, what's your response for that? Why hasn't this happened to Japan is really multi-pronged. Um, number one, Japan's a big surplus nation. Uh, number two, uh, Japan does not have the global reserve currency. Number three, uh, the United States has effectively provided Japan's defense for the last 40 or 50 years. And so Japan has not had to spend their money on that like the United States not only has to spend on our own defense, but de facto sort of defend global trade lanes, 
Uh, Japan's very different demographically speaking. Uh, Japan has largely funded its debt internally, which means, um, you know, when you have deflation, it's not a problem uh, as opposed to the U.S. who is funded externally. Uh, So there's there's a lot of really big, important reasons why Japan is different than the U.S. um, in terms of how this situation is likely to resolve you know, given what would seem to be a, a, a similar problem, you know, given debt loads, you know, on the surface. So, uh, Luke, I would like to talk about the other uh, element here in this equation, because we, we keep talking about uh, oil primarily, and then we also talk about gold from time to time, and sometimes that will also be denominated, and, and we just briefly touched upon it before. Now, I I think one one thing we, we need to, to outline uh, for the audience here is also to talk about the the dramatic changes we have seen uh, in recent years in the gold market, especially from from uh, China and Russia. So could you tell us about what has happened in the gold market and then uh, then talk about how does that in turn um, change perhaps the relationship and the dynamics between the U.S., Russia, and, and China? Absolutely. So the gold market's a really interesting market. Um, most people want to look at it and think about it as a market and the price on the screen is a price they see. And the reality is it's a political metal. Um, and uh, it's a political metal. And it, it is a, a market where you have a very big cash settled derivative market attached to it, uh, which also complicates things. And so there's always been this discussion of is it manipulated? Is it not manipulated? And it's, you know, conspiracy theorists. No, just look at the fact. As I look at what's happening with gold, with what China and Russia appear to be doing, the calculus seems very simple. China and Russia seem to be saying, okay, you're right. It's not manipulated. Give us the physical. And the problem, of course, is, (laughs) um, you know, regardless of whether it's manipulated or not, the physical oil market alone is, you know, on an annual production term basis, you know, 10 to 15 times the physical gold market. And so as soon as you see Russia do what they started doing in 2013, which was their their pile of treasuries stopped growing and actually fell a bit. And it's, you know, it fell, you know, quite a bit at first. And since then, it's sort of just been been marching time and their their pile of gold at the FX reserve level rising steadily. That's effectively what you're seeing happen is them saying, OK, it's not manipulated. Great. Give us the physical. If you or I tried to do that, you know, it's, that's, you know, it's what the, 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 uh, the Hunt brothers did to the silver market. They just changed the rules and they close you out. And they make, but when you're a nuclear armed power, you can't exactly, um, you know, it puts you in a position uh, that is difficult to, to it, it turns into a geopolitical statement, a geopolitical issue. And that's what I think what Russia and China are doing with this, which is if you look at what how China has set up their system, you know, we said before, it looks like China has reopened a Bretton Woods gold window uh, at, through Yuan at a floating gold price. When you look at what they've done at the SGEI in Shanghai and then Hong Kong and Dubai. However, to our eyes, it looks like China has learned the lessons uh, from the mistakes the United States made in trying to have operate a gold window, which is to say, number one, they're not fixing the price because you can't maintain a peg. Every peg in history has broken. Uh, currency peg in history is broken. And then number two, and this is very elegant in my opinion, the, the, any gold that is in mainland China is not allowed to leave mainland China. And so when you look at this system, China and Russia appear to be saying, okay, great, it's not manipulated, give us the physical. Uh, and we're going to start trading in it. And 
you know, settling some imbalances in it on the margin. And this pile that sits in China is not allowed to leave, by the way. And we've been buying it and we keep buying it. We're just tightening global supplies. But once it's in mainland China, it's not allowed to leave. This little pile over here in Shanghai can leave. And, and if you have some in Hong Kong or Dubai, it can, it can move however you want. And when you think about the implications of that, then you go, okay, well, where does the gold, any gold that, you know, gets any offshore you want that were to get settled in physical gold, if it can't come from mainland China, where does it come from? Well, there's really only two, maybe three places, right? It's US, UK, or India. And the Indians aren't selling, they're buying, they're always buying. Uh, so, okay, it's really US and UK. And so now, you know, to anybody familiar with or having read the history of, of the London gold pool uh, in the late 60s, this starts to look really familiar because now you can just see it's basically like a boa constrictor slowly tightening um, because it's, you know, the, the, what China, Russia saying, hey, all right, gold's not manipulated. Give us a physical. You end up with a situation, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Dubai, where they're saying, OK, we need physical. That's physical can only come from the U.S. or U.K. Now the U.S. or U.K. has to say one of three things. Yes, you can have your gold and we're going to let the price rise, which will devalue the dollar as gold rises. OK, yes, you can have your gold, but we're not going to let the price of gold rise. We're going to allow the leverage in the gold system to rise as the physical leaves and moves east. And as a practical matter, I think that's what's been happening since 2013. Um, or option number three is no, you can't have the gold. And, you know, the day were that to ever come that, you know, London or New York says no Shanghai, Hong Kong, Dubai, you can't have the gold. That'll be a real interesting day, but I don't think the dollar is going to open up the day the CME says, sorry, COMEX is going cash settled on everything. Uh, and so that's what I think China and Russia are doing is effectively they're calling BS on, you know, is it manipulated? Is it not? We don't care. Give us the physical. You say it's not. You say that's the right price. OK, give us the physical. The reality is if you look at gold relative to any number of monetary aggregates, U.S. foreign debt outstanding, et cetera. Um, gold's trade trading at a fraction of where it, it should be uh, relative to any number of those sort of gold P.E. ratios, if you will. And how much do you think that they will accumulate? I mean, if you look at how much gold that they have, you know, if you look at the U.S., call it, you know, 8,000 tons uh, or whatnot, you know, if you look at that comparison to GDP, you know, it's we approximate the same rate with, with Russia, even though they still still accumulate. Um, I don't think that anyone, except for the Chinese, knows how much gold that they have. It, it's it's a very difficult number to to find, and I think if you, if you can find any number, it's probably not the the right one. But it seems like they're buying up like everything um, uh, productions, so like in everything that's on and off the market. So, uh, how much do you think that will end up accumulating? Do you think they will find new thresholds compared to the GDP, or do they just look at this and like a lot? longer time horizon? You know, I, I think they're looking at this in a lot longer time horizon. I think, you know, I had, a, I had a customer who said to me, Luke, have you ever heard what, what Mao said about the, when he was asked about the French Revolution? And I said, no. He goes, you know, they, someone asked him what he thought about the French Revolution. And his answer was, it's too soon to tell. You know, <laughs> this is 100, 150, 170 years later. Um, and, and, you know, whether that story is apocryphal or not, to me, I think that there, you know, it speaks to the, uh, the, the willingness, the cultural willingness and ability to be patient to achieve a longer term uh, outcome. If I'm them, I want to acquire as much as possible. I mean, I think what they're doing broadly, I and mean, this relates to gold, this relates to oil, etc. You know, remember, we talked about before, 
you know, the dollar system has been supported by the expansion of paper derivatives that promise gold, that promise oil, that promise, um, you know, real wealth, right? That the, or assets that provide real wealth in this world. And as those derivatives have, have expanded, you end up with these highly levered paper derivative systems that require nobody to ever exchange the derivatives for the actual underlying. And I think that's what China sees is, and, and I've been told a number of stories suggesting that is exactly what China sees, which, and, and so then if, if you understand that, then to the way we've looked at it is, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or read the book Moneyball, uh, Michael Lewis's book. They're effectively playing a sort of monetary Moneyball, which is to say, you know, in that book, you know, the gist of that book, of course, was that, you know, a walk and a single in baseball are functionally the same thing. Uh, but the guys who hit a lot of singles get paid and, you know, a big multiple of the guys who walk a lot. And so they could build a very competitive team on the cheap by, by you know, hiring the guys or by signing the guys that, that walked a lot as opposed to the guys that hit a lot. At any rate, uh, in, in much the same way, Westerners in particular, Western banks uh, have been told by regulatory authorities, which are controlled by the American government, that, you know, a treasury bond is every bit as good as gold and treasury bond is worth this much oil, et cetera. And China's looking around and going, well, gosh, there's all that debt out there and there's not that much gold out there. There's not that much oil out there. The, 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 the mismatch between American dollar derivatives and, and American dollar debt relative to the physical underlying has been allowed to get way out of whack over the last 25, 30 years. And so they're just walking around going, OK, you take the treasuries and the dollars. We will take the fill in the blank physical underlying. And that's really the game I think they're playing. So to directly answer your question, how much do they have? How much is enough? If I'm in China, I've been probably looking around going, I can't believe they just let me keep exchanging dollars for this. Like, what, what are they doing? I can't believe they're being this dogmatic about the treasury system, the dollar system. But we have. Now, maybe that's changing on the margin. Um, people are certainly squawking about, you know, it's squawking about it here in terms of some of the implications. But But that's what I think the game is, is this. Okay, you you take the dollars, we'll take the stuff. You know, I'm curious, Luke, a, a lot of uh, the ideas that you're talking about kind of resemble some of the stuff that Jim Rickards has been talking about for the last couple of years. And uh, one of the narratives that Jim usually brings up is this idea of the SDR is becoming a global currency and things like that. I'm kind of curious how you view the SDR. Do you see it in a similar light, playing a similar role? Uh, yeah, I could see. I mean, he 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 is. I, I would definitely defer to him on on his understanding of that uh, relative to mine, just given some of his relationships and you know how long he's been involved at those levels in that game. Uh, that said, in terms of my interpretation, yeah, I think you know you you look. You saw China come out in two thousand nine and explicitly say we want to move to some sort of neutral reserve asset. I think it gets into a political discussion between the varying parties of, you know, do we include some gold in it? How do we, how, how do we manage that? I mean, there was a, um, a white paper put out by the IMF uh, in 2011 uh, under Dominique Strauss-Kahn when he was the chair, which uh, looked at pricing commodities, this is quote, looked at pricing commodities such as oil and gold in SDRs. So and that would kind of tie back to the point um, made earlier where if you reestablish a ratio, right? So if we come out and say, hey, gold is, you know, the, the IMF is going to bid for gold at 5,000 SDR and the ratio, you know, and maintain a ratio of gold to oil at 400 to one, 
right? So there's, you know, 400 barrels per ounce. So now you've got SDR 5,000 gold, you've got, you know, 120 SDR uh, oil, and uh, then you've got the five basket, you know, currencies underneath that, that has different implications for. Mechanically, there's no reason why something like that wouldn't work. It would work beautifully. The system would be balanced almost instantly. There would be certainly major vicious sector rotations, etc. But that would allow you to very quickly um, sort of move along that transition from this dollar-centric system to that balance of payments currency system that we were discussing earlier. And, and really, it would actually be a huge boon to global trade. It would be you know, people a lot of times say, oh, if gold's at 5,000 or 5,000 SDR even, you know, the world will be ending. You're going to, you know, no, <laughs> you're going to reset. You're going to basically have written down the real value of sovereign debt globally. Uh, you're going to rebalance trade. You're going to incentive trade. The global economy, growth, wealth, prosperity would explode higher with one caveat. If you have all your wealth in sovereign debt globally, you're not going to be happy on a real basis. You're going to get every paid, pay, you're going to pay, get paid every dime nominally, uh, but you're going to lose money on a real basis. But I think that's to directly answer your question again. Does the SDR have a role? Quite possibly. Uh, yes. Could it? It could be done. It's easy to do in the way I described. It's not simple. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? 
Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. And, and I love your point there because you just identified the bill payer for all of this. And that's if you're holding this super low yielding debt, you're going to be the bill payer. Oh, you're that's to me, this is like the most crystal clear thing as I, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, 23 or 24 years now. And it's interesting. You look at who have the biggest marginal buyers of U.S. Treasury bonds been over the last three, four, five years, been uh, U.S. commercial banks, been U.S. public pension funds. It's been U.S. retail investors through investment funds. If you look at the Treasury data and you know, I don't want to come off as sounding flip or, or glib, uh, but the reality is, as I look across my career, almost a quarter century now, the biggest bag holder in every, you know, macro blow up I've had in my career uh, have been U.S. commercial banks, U.S. public <laughs> pensions, and U.S. retail investors. And and so, yeah. So why are they the patsy at the table? Uh, are, are they the patsy at the table because they have a relationship with the Fed and they're forced into it? Yeah, regular, the banks certainly have been regulatorily, regulatorily forced into it uh, over the last four years in particular, right? You look at 3Q14, you had new HQLA or high quality liquid asset regulations that mandated that the banks up their capital levels and the capital they held was rated, you know, risk weighted. And oh, by the way, treasury bonds are zero risk weighted. So, you know, go buy a bunch. And they did. Uh, money market funds, you know, we are going to, you know, uh, reform the money market fund industry, but those reforms are much less draconian if you buy treasuries than if you buy private sector paper. Um, and I think some of the, you know, the, the, the public pension stuff, I don't think there's anything um, necessarily regulatory driven there other than I think that, you know, low interest rate environment, they're just trying to liability match and they're just, you know, they're getting squeezed. And so they sort of are natural buyer um, U.S. investment funds, you know, some of that and is they, demographic. And they can aging. get away with it because of the governance and the way that it's been, you know, the ownership is so distributed that the underlying owner doesn't even understand what the heck's happening. That's exactly right. And it's and when you really look at it, look, I mean, remember my point before, what are the biggest, you know, the two biggest line items that we need to spend all this treasuries for are entitlements. And so, you know, to the extent that, you know, public pensions and in, that individuals are responsible for this stuff, and are the bag holders, quote unquote, look, they're really paying for their own care. You know, a novel concept, right? So if, if we now have established where the downside is and where we think in the coming 10 years where people are going to be the bill payers for the, the future growth, where is that growth going to happen moving forward? Where are you excited moving forward into the next 10 years? 
You know, I'm really excited. You know, if you look at from the big context of what we're discussing, you know, if if the dollar centric system, if the beneficiaries of that in the United States were people in the dollar export business uh, and the losers in that were people, you know, in the manufacturing or in the in the stuff export business, you know, um, I think that's going to reverse. I think you're, you know, via, you know, the, the balancing of the dollar through some of the methods potentially that we talked about, uh, the dollar export business loses, relatively speaking, and the stuff export business wins, relatively speaking, in the United States. And so I think, you know, structurally, you know, infrastructure, commodities, industrials, uh, tech, you so know, tangible relative, and intangible products. Sorry to interrupt you. Tangible and intangible. Yeah, because yeah, IP is every bit as valuable or yeah. intellectual property, every bit as valuable as, you know, uh, a steel a steel mill, maybe more so uh, in today's economy. Uh, actually, probably definitely more so in today's economy. The, the, the flip side of that coin, of course, you look over to Asia or these other export driven economies, right? It has been the loser has been, you know, their game has been we're going to defer consumption uh, in order to build capital and export to the Americans. And I think you're going to see the you know a reversal of that as well, away from sort of you know mercantile. I know that can be a loaded word, but sort of you know export-driven production growth and more uh, uh, you know producing more for our own consumption. And so I think former, in particular in Asia, um, uh, former export-driven economies will see uh, outperformance on a relative basis by consumption and services, and vice versa in the U.S. The stuff that outperformed before. Well, relatively underperform, uh, you'll be more sort of, you know, stuff export driven. So I know that this industry has just been bludgeoned over the last two or three months, and that's the crypto industry uh, since December. But as a guy who understands why a peg is so important and this whole movement of global currency and the mixing and the dollar kind of devaluing and this whole this whole narrative we're talking about. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the idea of crypto becoming this global peg. Um, kind of your thoughts on what you think the likelihood of something like that is. Kind of your just your general thoughts on it. Sure. Um, you know, crypto to me, the thing that has gotten my attention most. You know, it, it, two things, I guess. Number one, in the short term, it was interesting. Um, you know, I was looking at what Bitcoin was doing last year and I was thinking to myself, gosh, that that Bitcoin is doing what gold would be doing if it didn't have this gigantic paper derivative market attached to it. And I was introduced uh, via a mutual friend to one of the one of the bigger physical gold traders in the world uh, late last year. And unsolicited, this 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 person says to me, boy, Bitcoin's doing what gold would be doing if it didn't have this gigantic derivative market attached to it. And I, I just remember my jaw dropping. So I, it's that w- watching what Bitcoin did was very interesting, just in sort of a near term perspective from a broader structural perspective of crypto. To me, the thing that gets me most interested, most excited ties back to the point I made earlier that I think it's underappreciated, particularly in the West, the degree to which the dollar centric system has been supported by rapid growth of paper derivatives and, and control that they control the pricing of underlying real wealth, whether you're talking about gold, silver, uh, commodities, etc. And so when I start to look around and, and, and see a lot of different um, use of crypto in these systems, you know, you know, crypto and, and, and you know, putting gold on the blockchain, putting uh, oil and copper and all these different real assets on the blockchain, um, you start thinking about 
you know, if, if, if you think about those things in the context of understanding how big the dollar derivative markets were allowed to get relative to physical underlying of, of not just gold, but of, of lots of different real wealth assets uh, and start thinking about the implications of that. Um, to me, crypto could be absolutely groundbreaking in terms of its ability to relatively quickly, you know, sort of disintermediate or reintermediate, I guess, you know, this this paper derivative market. Now, I'm gonna, I'll pick on gold specifically because it's easy to to illuminate, right? But if you've got, you know, gold, which has, say there's, you know, 100 paper ounces out for every real ounce, uh, and you start putting uh, gold on the blockchain where all of a sudden it's one-to-one, um, you're effectively creating a, a, a parallel market in gold um, in much the same way that, you know, China and Russia are trying to do. In other words, if I'm a gold miner and, you know, you get gold blockchain to take off, um, in any real way, you know, say there does get to be a shortage. Historically, when you've got a giant derivative market and there's a shortage in, in physical gold, the price of gold crashes, actually, because it's just a run on the bank. The liability collapses. Um, but the premium should be rising. So all of a sudden you would have a situation where gold miners could go start selling into the, you know, into this sort of this this real physical bid in blockchain. Suppliers could go to that market and you'd, you'd be circumventing you know, the gold derivative market. And that could take place in any market where a, a physical asset market where there is a paper market attached that has historically set price. And so I look at crypto as potentially very revolutionary uh, means of disintermediating sort of the dollar based commodity derivative system, you know, uh, which has massive implications. And given the speed at which the guys in Silicon Valley and in tech historically move, you know, I don't know that we're talking about decades, um, yeah. uh, you know? Yeah, we're with you. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting talking about currencies. We talked about the yuan and dollar. Now we're talking about cryptocurrencies, gold for that matter. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thought process of how to value the prospects for uh, for a currency. And it could basically be any currency. It's more like how you think of it. Like, cause it's, it might be easy to say, well, you know, it's, it's demand and supply. And then, you know, one guy can come with like three arguments that you will appreciate. And another guy can say, well, and then I have another three arguments. So, you know, it's a push. Um, how do you, how do you consider like the magnitude and the significance in different events and different uh, demand supply factors? Can I piggyback on what Stig just said? If you were going to describe how currencies work or how they how they're valued to like a high school student, how would you describe that? Um, I think you have to start all the way back and understand that you know they're lent into existence, right? The way our system works. Start there. You know, they're lent into existence. Okay. Um, if they're lent into existence, um, you know, then you start getting into some of the different, you know, you kind of next branch down is, okay, historically, the way this has worked is the guy with the best trade position, guy with the biggest pile of reserves, had the best currency and then vice versa, the worst. And then we changed the system this a bit, um, you know, from the last 40, 50 years. And now we're starting to move back. Then I think you go down to another level where, um, you have to understand that it's not purely based on uh, supply demand of trade, but then there's also um, uh, debt levels, right? Certainly once you, if you've had sort of this mono currency driven system like we've had, which has been 
you know, basically if everyone borrows in dollars, um, you know, there is this incipient dollar demand that is always there. And if you understand that, then you can understand what's happening offshore in terms of um, liquidity based on what the dollar is doing, based on what LIBOR is doing. You know, and, and then I think with within all that, I think another overlay you have to look at are, you know, you get into geopolitics, you get into creditor and debtor relationships. Something that one of the big things I think the world is missing, and particularly Westerners are missing, is that the United States, especially post-08, you know, everyone says, well, we need to run the deficits. Everyone loans us the money. We're everybody's consumer. You know, what's going to happen if we're not here to consume every, you know, everybody's production? And, and, and it's sort of always been the case, but particularly post-08, it's been the case. That's a little bit like being on the island, you know, being on a deserted island, right, with, you know, we'll say with, with Mr. Yuan and Mr. Yen and Mr. Euro and Mr. Pound and Mr. Dollar. And we're all sitting around a table and, and Mr. Yuan, you know, catches all the fish and Mr. Euro cooks all the fish and, and, and Mr. Yen, you know, sort of, you know, upkeeps the boats to, and, and makes the boats to go catch the fish and, and Mr. Pound sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, has nets to catch the fish and, and, and Mr. Dollar sitting at the end of the table going, well, you know, you guys can't vote me off the island because if I'm not here to eat all your fish, like you guys are screwed. Historically, that was sort of true, but we actually once upon a time kept again we keeping the dollar as good as gold for oil we there was a, a responsibility that the us had or, or you know managed you could see in the way we managed the dollar you have two currencies right you have dollar external dollar internal and we in particular in the early 80s you know paul volcker late 70s early 80s you can read the fed transcripts they have a great um a great uh, archive called the uh, the reform of 1979 and, you know, the dollar was in a very bad place. He, uh, Paul Volcker went to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and was effectively told by the Germans, like, listen, take care of the dollar. He spent 24 hours there, flew back to Washington, and basically, you know, put the United States into a very bad recession, effectively, to show the world that we would be willing to take the pain to manage the dollar for everybody else. And that bought us 30, 35 years. And, you know, today, I find it's not, you know, particularly in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you can see how Washington has dealt with it. It's basically been this, it's our currency and it's your problem. And so there's sort of this, this mutual uh, um, balance has been lost or was lost. It's being restored now. So I think, you know, there's, you know, when you think about what, what currencies, uh, what currencies are, what they mean, when you think about credit or debtors, um, there's a responsibility of both. Uh, you can't just be the debtor and and because at some point, you know, post 08, you know, we got into a situation where, yeah, hey, you still need us to consume. And if, if things change too rapidly, it creates a problem. And, and and people understood that you get five, eight, 10 years on. Look, you know, America still needs the world to lend to us at negative real rates to be able to consume, to basically keep the wheels on the cart. Yeah. The problem with that is over time, if you lend to somebody at negative real rates, you're going to go broke yourself on a real basis. Like I, I am happy to borrow all the money in the world at negative 2% real rates for 30 years. I'll take it right now. Give me a call. You can. But of course, anyone who lends that to me, I'm going to have all the wealth in 30 years. Yeah. And so the world's going. Eh. And so there's, you know, it's a very complex topic um, with a number of different ways. But I think if you start understanding structure of the system, if you understand motivations of partners under that system, and how those motivations partners, uh, motivations of those partners change over time. I mean, it's, you know, 
uh, Charlie Munger says, you show me an incentive, I'll show you an outcome. You know, like the outcome we have right now is, is the most predictable thing in the world. Um, you know, the only, the only thing left to know is sort of what, what the denouement is. You know, I don't know what that is, but getting to where we are, you know, if you understand where we started from and how things developed since, you kind of go, huh, well, that makes sense. I'll tell you what, Luke, um, just so impressed with your depth of knowledge. It is mind blowing. If somebody's listening to this, I'm sure people out there listening to this saying, I would love to learn more about what Luke knows here. If the, what book would you recommend for currency understanding, you know, understanding the depth of the stuff that we were talking about today? What are some books or a video or whatever? We can link to it in the show notes if you found something that was really influential that helped you understand the, the things that you know. Sure. Um, you know, I think in terms of the the current period of time in particular, the one I've been talking about, I've tweeted about it a number of times. I've written about it in our research a number of times has been um, Lords of Finance by Liaquat Ahmed. Uh, and it's a biopic of the big four central bankers for, right after World War One. And that was really the last time we had a global sovereign debt bubble like we have now. And it, it really, you know, I first read that book. I think it was published in 2010. I think I read it in 2011. Uh, and I just remember going, oh, my gosh, like this is it's a veritable roadmap to what we're going through. Um, and so I would I would highlight that. Um, you know, there's a book called uh, A Century of War uh, called William Engdahl. He can be a bit conspiratorial at times, in my opinion. There are certain things in the book that, you know, you're considered a bit conspiratorial. That said, they all it's also very, very well researched and very uh, it provides some really good narrative background of kind of understanding how some of the world's geopolitics, currency overlaps uh, have, have developed over time. So, Luke, I know you're on Twitter and we'll have uh, a link to your Twitter feed uh, in our show notes for anybody else that wants to follow you and, and talk with you on Twitter. But uh, anything else that you want to tell our audience uh, a little bit about your company, your background, just uh, tell everyone what you do. I am the, uh, the founder and president of FFTT, which stands for Forest for the Trees. And uh, as I said before in the interview, spent uh, you know nearly 25 years on Wall Street as an analyst and sales uh, uh, executive uh, at a couple different regional uh, investment research firms. And in early 2014, hung out my own shingle uh, as FFTT. And what we've really, what we really try to do is, is aggregate a large amount of publicly available data in a, in a uh, unique manner and try to identify developing economic bottlenecks uh, in different sectors and, and uh, you know, macro themes uh, for our customers. You know, our customers are uh, institutions, uh, uh, family offices, sophisticated individual investors, and uh, we publish an eight to ten page report every Thursday, and we uh, do a, a brief pre-recorded webinar with a you know brief transcript every other Tuesday. Um, and you know, if people are looking for more information about uh, that and some some samples of our work, it's available online at FFTT Frank Frank Tom Tom LLC dot com. Awesome. We'll have a link in the show notes for people to check that out, Luke. Thank you. Seriously, incredible uh, discussion with you, and we really appreciate your Thanks. time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, thoroughly enjoyable. I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. All right, guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Thank you.